0: Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today it's time to take a national picture. We'll look across the nation at all the pandemic-related measures, the economic devastation, and we'll be asking whether or not our federation is actually working. Is our nation actually sticking together during this time of crisis? To talk to us about that, I'll be introducing in a minute our New South Wales correspondent, Evan Mulholland, um, as well as our regular co-host, Chris Berg, We'll also be looking at the stoush between the big giants of Facebook and Google versus the increasingly small Australian newspaper publishing industry, uh, be it Nine or News Limited such as it is, and whether or not the ACCC can actually extract some value for the latter in their battle against the former. Plus, as usual, we'll be doing our uh, Books and Culture segment, which this week has the obligatory Netflix specials. But uh, I do want to say, first of all, before I throw to my uh, fellow panellists, the IPA is a national organisation. It's never been more national. This is, uh, we have members all over Australia and we have staff all over Australia. You've heard in recent weeks, Kean Hussey from WA, Daniel Wilde from South Australia. As I mentioned, we'll also be having uh, Evan Mulholland from New South Wales so do not forget that you can join the IPA and become one of more than 6,000 members to support our fight for freedom in these difficult times. If you want to find out more, go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. But first of all, as I mentioned, uh, my co-host Chris Berg from RMIT University is on Zoom as we speak. Hi, Chris. Good
1: G'day. G'day, Scott. How are you?
0: Can I also introduce another bearded member of the IPA team, Evan Mulholland.
2: Thanks for having me, Scott and Chris.
0: Director of Communication at uh, the IPA. So, Chris, set it up for us. We'll be talking about uh, specific states, our international borders, state borders, but where do we actually start to untangle the mess in which we seem to have uh, found ourselves?
1: That's right, Scott. And and um, Scott, you and I were talking over the course of the week. And last week, we did a very Victoria-centric show because, of course, it's front of mind. But um, uh, there is national politics. There is uh, politics in other states as well, um, and it's particularly uh, vicious politics right now because it's very unclear how we are going to move from the incredibly closed border system to the a, to a more open. interstate border system that um, we all hope and enjoy, particularly by Christmas. So all states except Western Australia are hoping to ease their border restrictions before Christmas. The Commonwealth's goal is to move away from hard borders to a hotspot model. So if you live in a coronavirus hotspot, then you might be prevented from traveling across a state border. Now, I have some scepticism about how likely that is to function effectively given what we've seen even in the hard border model. But nonetheless, that's the policy um, signed up to uh, uh, at least provisionally and and depending on the definition of what a hotspot is by all states except WA. Over the last week, couple of weeks, we've seen some really um, horrifying individual instances of the personal hardships that these hard borders can um, impose. Uh, Now, of course, we would never compare what's happening with an election campaign to a significant hardship. But um, Scott Morrison has just been told in the last couple of days that he can't enter Queensland um, uh, for electoral campaigning purposes unless he spends 14 days in isolation. Um, uh, Let's step back, though. So there's lots of detail here. It's very confusing. The Prime Minister has suggested that the rules are very complex and sometimes confusing as well, but this is a resurgence of a sort of independent state model of policymaking, um, where the states are on um, uh, have sovereign powers over their own borders in a way that we may not have seen before federation itself. So, Evan, I'd like to throw to you with as big a question as I as I can possibly design. Um, Evan, are you? Is the federation working? Is it? Is it in a better or worse situation? How do you think about this from a federation perspective?
2: Um, yeah, there's a lot in that question, Chris. Um, as, I, as
1: much as I could possibly squeeze into it. Evan, yes.
2: <laughs> um, what I would say is that the federation uh, seems a, a, a bit torn up, uh, not quite broken, but a bit torn up. I'm all for states having rights and states' rights being able to determine uh, their own policies. Um, The first part point I would make is the Constitution clearly says uh, for the free exchange of of, of travel and commerce between states. Um, So that's the first thing. It's a constitutional right given to each Australian that they should be able to travel to each state. The second thing I would say is that the states are um, uh, determining what policy outcomes uh, they have, whether it be borders or lockdowns, but not bearing any of the economic responsibility, uh, the federal government is spending 16 to 18 percent of GDP on the economic response of this pandemic. Yet the states are only spending, on average, two percent of gross state product on their own coronavirus response. So they're they're pulling the levers, um, if uh, one would say, on uh, on borders, on lockdowns, on all the things uh, that. Uh, will cause the economic hardship and lead to the federal government having to uh, bear the economic responsibility for that and not the state. So I think if the states were wanting to do these policies, I do think a, a real you know fixed federation would have them bearing much more of the economic responsibility for that.
1: Can I just make a point there because i I have only so much sympathy for the federal government in this. Um, the history of our federation is the slow accumulation of power and financial control so that in in the Commonwealth so that it is in this position that it has um, uh, no control but lots of responsibility now that to my mind is a deliberate choice of the Commonwealth that put themselves in this situation so if Josh Frydenberg obviously you know this isn't Josh Frydenberg isn't to blame for our federations' imbalances. But if Josh Reidenberg is looking at why he's carrying the can, well, that's because the Commonwealth government has wanted to carry the can for the last 100 years.
0: Yeah, Chris, do you want to throw in the uh, the referral of income tax powers to the Commonwealth during well, World, no, so, World yeah, War II? No, I mean, how as, far, as how far the, back do you want to go?
1: <laughs> one. But also the the GST, the collection is done by the Commonwealth and distributed down to the states too. So it it, I, I I understand that there's a problem. And I understand why Josh Frydenberg would be frustrated. But ultimately, in the Australian system, the um, states are sovereign, in a way that they aren't in a non federal system. And so they do have this power. And if it's meant that the Commonwealth government has suddenly ended up in a unprecedented pandemic, holding the water that that's the Commonwealth's fault, Evan.
2: Yeah, well, it is the, <laughs> it is, it is the Commonwealth's fault. And you know, I'm not taking any blame away from the Commonwealth government. I think the National Cabinet model that was set up at the start of this pandemic um, had a clear purpose to, for a coordination strategy of, of all the stages of lockdowns, all the states to be going through. And in, in a sense, it worked in that, that there was like a sole figure of communication uh, for the entire country that was going through the same thing. But with that has come all of this uh, feedback from the Australian people. Um, for example, in the last week, Scott Morrison has had to make, well, the last two weeks, Scott Morrison has had to make clear in several press conferences that he does not have any power to override Daniel Andrews because people are flooding uh, federal members of parliament offices with queries and demanding that Scott Morrison be able to override um, the Premier of Victoria. Now, I think that they only have themselves to blame for that because they're the ones that have made this National Cabinet model, made it seem like the Prime Minister has some sort of authority and decision-making power over the states, when clearly he doesn't.
0: I mean, this this is what happens when the, the nation forgets that it's a federation. Uh, it's not part of our our founding story in the way it is for Americans. I mean, much as the organisations like the IPA have spent, you know, 75 years trying to point out that, you know, federations, you know, on principle by the distribution of powers should enable people to be more free. But this is what happens when even people who support freedom have sort of, you know, haven't taken much interest in the constitutional arrangements uh, between the states and within the states. And, uh, yeah, yeah, there's people in Victoria who are very stressed, very frightened, and they don't want the ADF to come in and run a hotel quarantine. They want the ADF to come in <laughs> and remove the government. And Scott Morrison's got to point out that it doesn't actually work like that, and that's not a very good idea at all. Um, but it is time. I think, Chris, it's more than uh, saying the Commonwealth wanted this. All of the actors in a federation bear some responsibility for Animating it, the spirit that on which it was founded, and um, Zach Gorman, if you're listening, a great student of Australian history, of course, has has talked about. uh, You know, it was a popular vote of the people in every state to assent to the Australian Constitution, and instead, what we're finding is. Uh, the premiers of the individual states have found it very politically convenient to jettison that. They're, they're taking the part, uh, not only the path of least resistance, they're almost exploiting the parochialism, uh, the fear that comes in a pandemic to, to take the most extreme measures. We're not talking about border controls, it's always been defaulting to these, the hardest of all possible borders. We now have. A hard border for leaving the country, a hard border for coming back to the country because of the restrictions on, on quarantine, hard border with WA, we've seen it um, on the Queensland-New South Wales border, um, South Australian-Victoria border was closed even to the border communities. You know, this, this is just not making any sort of effort whatsoever um, and uh, potentially this could stretch on for months.
1: That's right. So I just want to, I just got one more observation about the the federation thing. I think for for a long time, for the last couple of decades, particularly as different governments downplayed the role of the federation, um, we have felt like a very unified country. And you wouldn't have said that we've got some interesting cultural differences across different states and regions and all that sort of thing. But we haven't thought of ourselves from a public policy perspective as particularly different or significant outside relatively marginal things like, you know, the Sydney lockdown, uh, lockout, sorry, um, late night lockouts versus the Melbourne late night lockout attempts, that sort of thing. It, it, it's been a public policy thing. But I think now over the last six months, we're really starting to see as we separate out the the strength of, and, and I don't mean strength in a good way, just the strength and power of having a federation that has different geopolitical communities. Um, And I've never felt more distant in Victoria from um, New South Wales, which is functionally the same state, or I would have said so in 2019, when I would fly back and forth between Sydney and Melbourne constantly. Um, And then and then WA, which is functionally acting as its own independent country and good for them. Um, at the moment, but but I, I think th- this is the resurgence, or at least this is a a new surge of um, uh, state identity that we're seeing in in a very visceral sense.
0: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right, Chris, and and it's it's fraying. I think relationships at a uh, at a personal level. I mean, we've talked about the economy, but. You know all those sort of little jokes that you have about, you know, Noosa's a northern suburb of Melbourne. Um, you know the the fly-in, fly-out workers from Perth, uh, the various economic refugees from South Australia that have settled in in Melbourne uh, over the years, and the same with with Tasmanians. Um, uh, the way that we see this great country of ours through through tourism, um, all of these personal connections are being lost. Um, and, and you wonder about the long-term effects of that. I mean, it's never been a particularly mobile country in the way that, that America historically was in terms of people moving for, for work um, and, you know, the, the generations being split across different states, but we're certainly seeing that at the moment. Grand, grandparents are, are not able to see their, their grandchildren uh, potentially for, for months at a, at a time. I worry about the long-term impacts of this. I mean, without catastrophising, Paul Kelly uh, in, in The Australian was even saying uh, that it adds to the uh, challenges of managing our relationship with China when essentially WA going, you know, going its own way, being in a, a beneficial uh, situation due to iron ore exports might just decide that it wants to have a very different relationship to China than the rest of the country. Um, so there's all sorts of issues playing out here.
1: Yeah, there is a practical, sorry, a practical political impact of this, which is that the um, individual states become much more aware, the political classes in individual states become much more aware of the residual power that they have um, in relative to the Commonwealth government and relative to other states. Um, so I would not be surprised that the um, shadow of COVID and the shadow of these state lockdowns ends up in much more assertive state governments trying to hopefully, my view would be this would be desirable, claw back some of the controls that they've lost from the Commonwealth.
0: So one of the things I just did want to point out too, that of course all this is allegedly done on health grounds because as we've seen in every state, um all measures taken, uh, you know, on any on any basis, are always alleged to be on health grounds. Now we've seen that story unravel in Victoria, where it's it's finally come out that the the curfews uh, in place uh, were nothing to do with the recommendations of the chief medical officer. Uh, I have two data points. One is uh, on my Twitter feed, Anastasia Palaszczuk has said we think it's important to listen to the health experts. Their advice keeps Queensland safe. So we have this, you know, running behind the. Uh, the Chief Health Officers, uh, once again, um, even though uh, the Chief Health Officer, Jeanette Young, uh, has said, I have given exemptions for people in entertainment and film because that is bringing a lot of money into this state. And can I say, we need every single dollar in our state. So much, so much for it being based on health advice. Um, I'm also fascinated to follow the uh, Clive Palmer's uh, perhaps quixotic uh, attempt to get WA to do something about its hard border, in the federal court hearings, uh, they actually called a variety of epidemiologists. Um, uh, when the federal government was a party to the case, they, they engaged uh, uh, Peter Collinian, uh who we've talked about on this show before, uh, and he said that the, um, uh, there was no health basis for hard borders, uh, as did, a, I think, actually, the chief health officer of WA. So, you know, all this, this idea that uh, what they're doing is purely because of health advice is rubbish. Um, and the more and, and needs to be exposed in all states, as it has been in Victoria. I mean, in Queensland, the hot-button political issue is that, um, you know, if you want to see your dying father, if you need emergency surgery, you can forget about getting into Queensland. But if you're an AFL footballer uh, or a film star, well, that's, that's OK. You'll get a permit.
2: And I note that um, Anastasia Palaszczuk, you know, is saying that, you know, she doesn't make the decisions. It's not my decision. It's the Chief Health Officer's. Yet she uh, found it right to commission half a million dollars worth of polling at taxpayer expense uh, to ask people about what they thought about lockdowns and what they thought about the Queensland government's response. Um, So in one sense, she's trying to take credit, saying she's going to keep the border secure. But at the same time, she's saying, well, that's not actually my decision to do that. Um, It's all a bit all over the place in terms of in terms of uh, the, the Queensland government
1: we're now at a stage where um the idea that it's just about health advice can't hold true because it's really what we're talking about is public policy trade-offs and i don't mean trade-offs in that economy versus health debate that we've had ad nauseum um in australia for the last six months i mean the ability of governments to manage infections as they may or may not come through so what is happening now in Victoria is the revelation about how disastrous our contract tracing system was, and how disastrous our quarantine system was. And so when the federal government tells us that they can't raise the cap on arrivals coming into Australia, and by extension can't allow us to travel overseas, just in case, you know, we decide to come back, therefore putting more pressure on the cap, what they're talking about is that they don't believe that they can quarantine effectively. They don't believe that they have the public policy capacity to manage an effective quarantine and contact tracing system. That's what they're talking about. Now, that's that's health advice in one sense, but really what we're talking about is public policy failure and admission of failure that you just they just don't think that they know how to do it. So, so much of this and, and, and just, pandemic... And,
0: and just, to, just to put a dimension around that, Chris, um, so the limits, uh, according to the ABC, until October 24... Uh, even in New South Wales uh, it can can take the grand total of 350 passenger arrivals a day so two, two plane loads per day is where they max out Perth 525, Brisbane 500, Adelaide 500 um, and, you know, Mark, Mark McGowan in WA is saying, oh, well, you know, everyone should transit through Christmas Island, which ha- happens to actually have, have uh, asylum seekers in it at the moment, or, you know, there's proposals to, you know, everyone's got to come in back through a defence for- force base in in uh, the Northern Territory, and as the government's pointed out, well, it is actually a defence force base, not a quarantine facility. But, um, you know, these are very, very low numbers because, as you say, Chris, this inability to gear up and actually manage uh that 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 uh, those returning australians
1: it's basically an acceptance of failure that we are as a country incapable of managing the return of our own citizens so we just won't let them return now um uh i'm sure if we had andrew Bushnell on he'd be able to um uh, provide a much more damning condemnation of what this tells us about sovereignty and citizenship but from my mind this this just shows a basic value on behalf of a government to its citizens who are abroad for all sorts of reasons, um, uh, whether that's just better job opportunities or studying abroad or what have you. The fact that we won't let them back in the country, or we will make it very challenging for them to get back in the country, I think is just it, it should not be accepted. But but this is this is the story of the, the uh, of COVID nineteen, isn't it? the government doing stuff that we do doing so many things that we cannot and should not accept and it's barely been discussed. But the idea that we are not allowed to leave the country without permission from the government. Well, that is I mean, just put on any historical memory about, you know, other regimes that have done that themselves. Now, I haven't done a full analysis of this, but this is a relatively um, unique thing to Australia. Um, most countries don't have a prohibition on leaving their countries. Um,
0: oh, you forget, uh, no, they, you they forget North Korea and Cuba, of course, Chris. Yeah, well, Absol- exactly. So, North um, Korea. But the
1: idea, that, the, the idea that we're unable to leave our country is, is, is it, again, it's... It, it should it's, be it's, deeply shocking. We cannot shocking. accept it. It should be deeply
2: shocking. It. I mean, the logic, the logic behind that is because they don't think they can have uh, the capacity for people coming back and if you look at the numbers New South Wales government is overwhelmingly uh, bearing a lot of the responsibility for quarantining people and um, so the federal government I think you know to give them some leeway uh, is hands are tied because of the amount of caps that the other state governments have on hotel uh, quarantine that's not to say they should the federal government shouldn't be doing more to try to get people back home and to also try to let people leave. I mean, in Europe, all across Europe, you've got you've got countries with much greater coronavirus numbers than us that aren't stopping people leaving, that aren't stopping people arriving into the country for for holidays, um, and they seem to be having a pretty normal go at things, uh, re- living a, re- a reasonably normal life, albeit with social distancing. And I'll I'll just touch on the point of 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 New South Wales more broadly because. Up here, there's a lot of sort of community trust in, in the government because it hasn't, uh, beyond what, what was originally done, put in punitive measures, and its focus has been on opening up the economy. And when you've got, say, a, co- a contact tracing system that actually works really well, is able to keep on top of the cases um, and keep them at a relatively low number, there is trust from the people in the government that they are doing a good job at things. They don't need to mandate masks, but you know, if you go on public transport, you see people going around regularly with those kind of things. So compare that to Victoria, where the contact tracing system and the failures of public policy are clearly so bad that there is you know, a form of resentment uh, from Victorians, a visceral resentment from Victorians in the way that the, that, that government has managed the, this crisis. And um, when you look at the other states, You know, I think, you know, the management of the WA, by the WA government, for example, and the fact that they are living reasonably normal lives does create a, you know, state patriotism that you might not see in other states. I
1: I want to just touch on um, the contact tracing failure. I remember in March, April, May, June, um, when Australia looked like it was doing pretty well. And I remember reading or um, hearing... Policymakers and journalists brag about how amazing our Victorian contact tracing was. world
0: class, I think we, was the phrase, Chris. W- world
1: class, we had a thousand contact tracers. Um, I have no doubt that there have been really substantial public policy values, um, uh, and, and public policy values in contact tracing, but I, I, I can't help but also think that a lot of this was just the, the, the luck of circumstances. So the um, Victorian government absolutely stuffed up quarantine. They absolutely failed to um, uh, ensure that contact tracing was the world's class that they were bragging about. And the idea that we're only now getting around to reforming the contact tracing system thing I think is absolutely disgraceful. But I think when we do the final reckoning, we'll never do a final reckoning, but when we do a, an attempt at looking back at this crisis, I think we will think and we will realise that um, which countries were hit hardest was more of a function of luck than, um, than, than we want to impose now. So WA has done really, really well, but WA had very, very few cases. New, Z- New Zealand has done very, very well. New Zealand had very, very few cases. We had few cases, but they escaped and just through a combination of bad luck and oh, and policy. And, and, and we're in the uh,
0: Southern Hemisphere, so our seasons are the opposite. So when, so when numbers yeah. were out of control in Europe, it was winter time.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I do think that so much of this is about luck, and in the in the reckoning that we will have to do in coming years, I, I think it'll be important for us to 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 not make this all about the policymakers as as damning as I am of of the choices that Daniel Andrews...
2: I'll I'll just disagree with you slightly on the contact tracing, just in in terms of a Victorian versus New South Wales uh, context. Um, In in Victoria, um, the IT systems there, or anyone close to the Victorian public service will tell you that the IT system is woeful, particularly in the Department of Health and Human Services. And all that in regards to contact tracing has to connect to all the GPs. This is why they end up using... Pen and paper, as well as a fax machine, in New South Wales. You know, um, this would be sort of six, seven years ago now. They, you know, upgraded all of the backend IT systems and got some of the best people uh, in the IT world to come help them with that uh, to create the Service New South Wales model. So everyone in the state has this Service New South Wales app. You've got your driver's license. You've got every interaction you have with the state government you can do through that app. And I'll give you one example of where the New South Wales government is really streaks ahead. And I think it's been able to help with their contract tracing. But this is one different example in that in Victoria, the permit system, you have to like download a word document, uh, basically from a link uh, and yes. then send it back in and print it out, make a copy. You in print, it, you print it out, you they, sign
0: it, you scan it, you send it back. Yeah. And not everyone
2: has a printer and a scanner. In New South Wales, when they had to set up the Aubrey-Wodonga permit uh, system, when the border closed... They had that up and running and on the app within about twenty four hours, and you could you could uh, process it from the app um, so it, I think that shows how like far ahead in terms of the digital age that New South Wales is, and I think that's helped with all all their other sort of contact tracing and pandemic response the
0: The other thing I wanted to uh, invite you both to reflect on is so here we are, so having criticized how uh, the Premiers of the different states have taken the parochial route to date. We're now in a dis- discussion, or should be. So let's say uh, you have Victoria uh, or Melbourne, at least. Uh, let's say you let's say you are a genuine panicker about COVID and you absolutely don't want any cases coming into your state. Um, we obviously have a situation where there are still cases in Melbourne. There are still some hot spots. Um, so. Uh, but there's now a ring of steel, is the phrase used by the great helmsman in Victoria, uh, basically stopping people going from Melbourne into regional Victoria. It's almost like there's two zones that you could draw. One is outside of Victoria and New South Wales, when you know it's hard to see what the residual justification is for preventing movement, say, between Queensland and Western Australia, between South Australia, West Australia and Queensland and Northern Territory. It's almost like that is... That is one zone, so you know I, I don't. I fail to see the residual justification for a hard border in WA preventing people coming in from Queensland, say. Um, and then to step back a bit, at a slightly higher level of risk, um, Victoria and New South Wales. The state border is not the issue. It's actually regional. Regional Victoria should be thought of in the same way as New South Wales, if you like, um, because. This is the absurdity that we've only finally lifted restrictions in regional Victoria, including in towns where they've never had a case, including in entire municipalities where they've where they've never had a case, um, and certainly no cases at the moment. So, um, even even for those who believe that you know the the borders should be pretty hard, yeah, just so many of the justifications are just falling away. But there's still no movement.
1: It's a, it, it makes me think that we've we've been talking about. As if these borders are, are real lines in the sand, like they've they've got fences, as if they're international borders. They're not. You can draw whatever borders you want. They provide a guide to um, uh, tax jurisdictions. They provide a guide to some regulatory constraints, but they don't exist as international borders do with fences and and physical um, physical barriers. So you can just say that you know this zone, this region is now part of melbourne it's or or not part of melbourne or what have you this is now in new south wales for the purposes of COVID. all we're talking about is where the police cars set up that's that's yeah. that is what we're talking about um we're not talking about any really clear physical barriers apart from those that exist in nature um new yeah. south wales victoria and
0: south yeah Canada. well and and as we've seen in, in melbourne where uh you know the the, the radial nature of, of melbourne um, but you know, 10% of Geelong's working population um, pre-COVID, you know, worked worked in Melbourne. So you know, very close connection to Geelong. But Geelong is part of regional Victoria, whereas the Mornington Peninsula is counted as part of Melbourne. Uh, even though, especially you know, down in, in the back end of the Morning Mornington Peninsula, it's you know, it's 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 rural, it's small blocks, um, and they're they're looking at Geelong. We're saying why why can Ge- why can you go for a counter meal in Geelong? Uh, but we're still under a stage four lockdown in, in in Shoreham. You know, this this is the absurdity of of doing doing it on on a basis of arbitrary lines on a map rather than an actual risk assessment.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's it's just yeah, absolutely ridiculous, and completely agree. And 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 another example is that when they locked down the entire entirety of regional Victoria, places like Mildura were were closed down, and you know. Mildura, as a city, is closer to Adelaide than it is Melbourne. It had zero cases. It's never had a case. And so um, the the fact that they would lock a city like that down is is completely ridiculous. Yeah, and, and people in they, Mildura... They've, they've always talked... There's always been talk in the initial lockdown, of oh, maybe we can treat regional areas differently. But every single time, it's like a one-size-fits-all policy uh, of let's just lock down everyone. Equally, And this is brought to point by something um, the education minister in Victoria, James Molino said, when he said they couldn't open schools and couldn't allow schools to reopen in regional Victoria, because that would be unfair on the students in metropolitan Melbourne that can't go to school, which proves the fraud that Victoria is somehow the education state, because it's not about, you know, learning and actual children's education and learning things. It's about Blunt equality at all costs. Everyone has to be equal regardless of the outcomes.
0: Yeah, pure, pure Scott, bureaucratic Scott, you're convenience. A, um, <laughs> yes.
1: You're a rural and regional sort of guy. You well, Thinking about your self-identity as a rural and regional person, it's just a homogenous rural or regional, isn't it? It's all the same. Yes, yeah, you. anything. You're exactly the same as the next down. The that's tank, right. Anything beyond, miles yes, below.
0: for the bureaucrats in Melbourne making policy, it's anything beyond the tram tracks. Is, is is regional victoria it's all it's all out there somewhere so so the decision about what what restrictions there should be in Mildura will be influenced by the by what's happening in Orbost and Portland yeah. and and uh, Jig. i mean this is this is the in Malatia, insan- yeah. insanity of it and hi mum if you're listening i uh, haven't seen you in 9 months now i think Uh, even though you're only two and a half hours away. But, um, yeah, this this is the the craziness of the situation in which we find ourselves. (laughs) But let's talk about a different kind of craziness, just to balance things up, which is the ongoing wars between the news providers in Australia and the big tech giants who uh, put that news onto their platforms. Chris? It is.
1: It is. For some reason, this is the second priority of the Commonwealth government after... Covid. um uh, throughout this whole process throughout the entire pandemic josh fridenberg has had two topics that he wanted to focus on keeping the economy going and making sure that google and facebook give money to um uh, the newspapers so uh regular listeners will um uh, know about um at least the broad strokes of this the ACCC a triple c has a developed a news media bargaining code that would require google and facebook these new specific digital platforms to pay news media companies in australia for the um right to i'm going to say the word include their content on those social media networks and search networks but include is very very um euphemistic what they mean is the right to link to content and provide very very short snippets Um, uh, little blurbs about what that content might be on those social media platforms. Google and Facebook obviously don't want to have to pay for that privilege of linking to content, which was the idea that you can link one page to another is the foundational technology of the World Wide Web. Um, And Google and Facebook don't want to be extorted into paying that money. So they've said to the government that they will actually just take the content down. They won't let Australians link to news websites themselves i had a piece in reason magazine explaining reason is a libertarian magazine in the u.s explaining what this means from an international perspective and why globally we should care but evan i know that you've been following this really closely and it'd be great to hear uh, your your take on this i'm gonna say it's a chamozzle, um but you know you, you use whatever words you want to use
2: it is i think it's just a big swindle a big government swindle from uh, you know, Facebook and Google to the ACCC, to, to the government, uh, it was an idea that was dreamt up around the time uh, that they did the media reform, which was actual liberalisation of the media market. And in order to get that through, I believe, they agreed to an ACCC inquiry into this. Rod Sims, the chair of the ACCC, got quite uh, animated about it. Um, and, you know, the idea that Google and Facebook are somehow... Stealing a revenue stream from our media is just not based on any evidence. So, what this policy aims to do is take from productive businesses that people have chosen to use; therefore, they are productive, and 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 give that money to unproductive businesses or failing businesses. So, I I know the word socialism gets batted around a lot, but this is what it actually looks like. You've got the government picking winners. and it's going to have negative consequences. As you said, Facebook have said they, they won't, um, uh, they won't uh, let people uh, uh, watch news uh, or link to news on, on their platform. And I'll, I'll put it this way. A lot of people talk about, I think it's bad for News Corp, it's bad for Nine, but it's bad for News Corp in particular. A lot of people talk about Sky News ratings, for example, and says, oh, it's not as much as commercial competitors. It's actually the second most popular news site in the country, second or third. Um, and some of its posts reach up to a million people. So you've got a a news organisation barracking uh, for a policy which might take away one of their biggest audience streams. It's ridiculous.
0: I I must say, though, uh, Evan, I'm a a bit more... I start from a a different place when it comes to to what's happened to... uh, Is it a pro-socialism place? No, no, uh, I'll, I'll... I'll talk about what's a better public policy. So I, as someone who's old enough to remember when newspapers used to go thump on your doorstep on a Saturday morning, um, and uh, I do have a sort of a touching faith in the ability of the fourth estate to enliven our democracy. And as an aside, I actually think um, uh, the old Fairfax press during this pandemic has, has actually been excellent. Um, any idea that you know, the, uh, the, there are journalists at the age in the Financial Review that are being targeted by the by the Danbots and the crazies out there uh, for writing quite balanced pieces about the failures of public policy during this. So I'm sympathetic both to to News as an organisation and and to you know Nine Fairfax. They don't get everything right, but you know part of our democracy does need this media and they have suffered from an historic decline in their revenues these are shells of them former the, for selves and i mean if nine hadn't bought fairfax its standalone value as a media organization was entirely questionable uh, you know was it even a going concern um, and they're just dwarfed by by google and facebook so before we get to public policy, I must say, my, my, I do have a lot of sympathy with those who would like to see something done for a healthy uh, fourth estate, for, for the ability of journalists to uh, criticise government, do true investigative reporting, which, you know, not just the, the usual um, rubbish that passes for investigative reporting. But that's all by way of background. This is not how you would do it. This and you know and of course it falls down because uh, of this the sheer power of Google and Facebook, which is they will find a way around this. I mean they're they're not they're not uh, they're no longer popular players in the public imagination, and there's a little bit of a sort of a populist bent of beating up on on Google and Facebook, but doing it in favour of these publishers aren't going to work. the The honest public policy systems are always those where you say, well, write a check if there's something that you truly value in these organisations, if you write a cheque, at least it's honest. It's scrutinised. The Auditor General can look at it. For Rod Sims, uh, at a competition with, at an organisation with competition in its name to write regulations forcing one party to give money to another party uh, is, is just the worst possible public policy way of addressing uh, a policy objective.
1: That's right. But, I mean, so we do write a cheque. Scott, I don't know whether you're familiar with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, but we do write a very large check for news content production every single year. Um, uh, it, it is striking to me that the so, in the original design of the news media bargaining code, um, the ABC and SBS are not included um, as potential recipients there's a strong possibility that they would be included in any final legislation that passed the parliament because the greens have particularly said that their support for this policy will be dependent on allowing the abc and sbs to benefit from it as well the upshot being that if the policy goes through with green support the coalition government will end up funding more money through tax through a new tax this is a new tax through a new tax to the public broadcasting system, which I think is just layering ironies upon ironies. I mean, there, there are so many strange things. Of course, News Limited, um, and I have a lot, of, um, uh, a, 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 a lot of love for News Limited in many ways, but News Limited is a American company and um, Google and Facebook are American companies. And when I was writing the piece up for Reason Magazine, I couldn't help but think, that what's happening here is a regional war between three very, very large American companies seeing a weak political system that might be able to um, uh, uh, have their proxy war about um, uh, about news bargaining and the relationship between the Internet and the traditional press, that they would then go and take those lessons to other weak jurisdictions and politically weak territories. Now, I think that's a terrible way to think of Australia. But I, I, just looking at this policy, yeah. it's very hard to which, um, have anything which, which the increases interpretation.
0: which increases the risk of a lose-lose outcome. Um, if 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 uh, if the wor- if Australia was the world and you had these powerful actors in a in a negotiation game, you know they they would bargain their way to a position where everybody wins a little, um, or nobody loses too much. Um, but when the stakes for Google and Facebook are that a precedent would be set for every other world jurisdiction, then they will beggar thy neighbour. They will find a way, uh, they, will, they will block links, they will, they will work out a way so that these news organisations do, uh, do not receive one cent, even if it pisses off uh, local consumers, because the bigger game for them is what it means for the rest of the world. And well, the, do,
1: thing is, um, the thing
2: is, sorry, go on. Uh, you know, do uh, does the government get involved in, on the basis of uh, the amount of links that are shown? Do they get involved if I send you, Scott, a link to a news.com article uh, because I've shared a link to that platform on uh, Google or on Gmail and I think, the fact that you've got Rod Sims, the chair of the ACCC, an unelected bureaucrat, putting out statements in response to ongoing machinations by Google and Facebook, I think is really, really bad for our democracy. It's not the way our democratic institutions should work. And and to highlight Chris's point, I think this would be a terrible mood if the government would, were to give money to the ABC and SBS, particularly as ABC highlights itself and likes to... Uh, pride itself on being independent uh, from commercial interests. This would mean that the commercial uh, viability of Google and Facebook is, has a direct uh, correlation with a revenue stream that they get. So it would be in part commercialization of the ABC. And if we're going to do that, just make the ABC a private uh, media organization anyway. That you know, they the would be best to do that rather than to play around with, you know, new taxes and and this swindle between, you know, large companies and large bureaucracies.
1: If the news companies are so frustrated that people are linking to their websites on these social media networks, they have the power to prevent them from doing so. So Facebook could, oh, sorry, um, uh, Fairfax or News Limited, nine newspapers, sorry, could easily put code on their website that says if, a visit comes from Facebook. It is blocked. You can easily, easily prevent Google from spidering your website and getting the links to present by. Um, I think it's just a robot.txt or something like that. It, you put on the um, uh, in the file system of your website itself. It is actually really, really easy to do. They. This is a two-way street. But what's what is happening in fact, and the reason that those companies don't want to do that is because. They actually get a huge amount of traffic from Facebook and Google. That would be a devastating blow to their social media presence. They just also want money. They just they just want money. I mean I, like I, I have competitors in this world. I want money too. but I don't go to the government just asking for the government just to take money from them and give it to me instead. and, and it, it is as, it is as simple and despicable as that as a policy.
0: No, well said, Chris, and I'm, I'm sure this is a, a topic we'll return to, at least if you have anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm still just really angry about it. Well, yeah, yeah, well. I'm, getting, I'm
0: getting that impression, and, uh, and there are big stakes <laughs> for companies uh, that, as we say, that we do actually care about, and we do care about news, uh, but we have come to that part of the show, which is where our books and culture segment, where we talk about what we've been reading, watching, and listening to. Uh, Chris, what do you have?
1: So I have been watching the Netflix, the next Netflix major series called Away, starring Hilary Swank. Um, Scott, I've expressed enthusiasm in the past on this show for stories about sad people in space. This is another story about a sad group of people in space. Uh, what was
0: that Brad, Brad the- Pitt one where he's... Going off to find The Martian. Him.
1: Well, he's not that sad no, Martian, no, 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 but... no. Oh, sorry. Brad Pitt, bloody,
0: he's got to go to Pluto to find his dad yeah, so they can the work, work out some dad in issues.
1: Interstellar. Yeah. There's, there's just a lot of sad people in space. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of that sub-genre. Um, this is not a bad entry. Um, this is, uh, so so the, the plot very briefly, is um, a group of astronauts, an international cohort of astronauts, um, uh, an American, a Russian, an Indian Um, uh, A Chinese and someone else um, person uh, are are a part of an international group that are flying to Mars to become the first person to land on Mars. Um, There's a little bit of interesting geopolitical overlays. Um, The Chinese astronaut, she will be the first person to step on um, Mars, which is obviously an agreement. But the leader of the mission is American, played by Hilary Swank. Um most of the um most of the story is set on either the spaceship or on um uh, back on earth so they don't spend a lot of time on Mars that happens um spoiler at the end of the show they don't all die these shows don't tend to end with just a flaming ball um <laughs> uh which you know which would which would be a new spin on the thing but it does one thing that i dislike about a lot of these shows is that to do character development where we get treated with these um interminable backstory flashbacks uh. about when people were kids and all that sort of thing and i i it, it frustrates me because it, it um reminds me of one of the most frustrating shows ever produced by humans which was lost and if you remember watching lost back in the i guess early 2000s around mm. then um uh they they for some reason there were like 30 main characters and they had to give backstories that went for at least half an hour to an hour to all of them now this is not as bad as that but it um it it falls down that path nonetheless it's a fairly gentle fairly relaxing you don't have to pay a lot of attention to it it's got a few sci-fi science fiction concepts that are interesting um uh and you know if you're just you're just filling in the hours during lockdown it's not a bad way to fill in the hours Scott.
0: very good uh now evan's got an actual book so we might go to him next before we go to the other netflix show
1: we're always just so proud when someone reads a book these days
2: it's pretty um i've got uh, a new social contract by uh tim wilson as of course is a former uh, staff member at the ipa and he's the member for gold sign Tim's book is, is very interesting. It maps out modern liberalism. Um, the, the thing that I um, really was drawn to is his um, thoughts about home ownership and basically connecting that to the future of the Liberal Party. Um, so he uses things like um, Australian Electoral Survey data to actually correlate home ownership with with being a Liberal voter Um uh, uh, he says that 46 percent of homeowners voted liberal compared to like 33 percent of labor voters and a, a really um, small amount of of greens voters and he's, and he's mapped out that comparison he's really um i guess concerned about the trend in home ownership um going from you know a generation ago where homes would cost say four times your income to now like 10 or 11 times your income and how that's a really um uh, really worrying thing and, and, and something we've spoken about a bit at the IPA uh, in our work on sort of the new heartland for the coalition. If someone is a homeowner, if someone has a stake in their community through things like family formation, uh, being involved in their community and community groups and, and, and being a homeowner, then they have a stake in uh, decisions that affect their wider community and their, their asset um and they are much more likely to vote uh against a party that encroaches on those um things than than someone who doesn't
0: now there's there's a lot in that and um uh i'm not sure actually that the does he talk about the pitch is not quite as scary when you look at the cost of servicing the debt i mean uh, um i mean the what it the cost of housing is obviously much, much higher compared to annual wages than it was, but interest rates have never been lower. So if any young people are out there listening, save up, buy a house, get into it. <laughs> yeah, and
2: it does it does talk about how, you know, the, the tax system uh, throws uh, everything at a, a productive uh, young person at the worst possible time, say, you know, in their late 20s and early 30s when they're climbing up up that ladder and um and suggest things like you know possibly being able to access your superannuation uh to to buy a home or at least pr- prioritizing the saving for buying a home before you have to um you know compulsorily siphon away money uh for your retirement which is at the it, it is you know 50 60 years away it's so far away for a lot of people whereas a, a home will be an asset you're able to to hold on to that will also be able to compound and, 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 and make your money.
0: No, I think that's absolutely critical. Particularly, I know we're, this is books and culture and not public policy, but you know the, these industry super funds are out there saying that the government should legislate for, for an environment which is conducive to build to rent. So it's essentially they're confiscating the savings of young people who are trying to start lives, start families... So that it can be managed by these um, uh, fat cats in industry super funds based out of Melbourne, who will then go and build blocks of apartments to rent it back to those very same people. I mean, that's that's got to be the most absurd public policy um, uh, idea that I've ever heard, because it's just you know because they're clipping the ticket all the way through. So um, I'm not sure Tim actually said any of that, but anyway, that's that's the framework that I put it through. So you would recommend this book, Evan. Yeah, highly recommend. Yeah. Available at all. It's everywhere. good, it, good, it, good too, it because, because
1: I think what, for some years, the conservative or liberal side of politics, and, and Tim doesn't describe himself as a conservative, of course, um, the, the liberal side of politics has been lacking is genuine intellectual contributions to a vision of Australia, yeah. um, uh, which the Labor Party has a... It's got an industry. They They've got factories of these young um MPs just cracking out vision of Australia books um the most iconic being of course Mark Latham's um early um uh things that really laid him down as an intellectual leader and it's great to see that next generation and, and Tim's hardly the only um one Andrew Bragg as well um is another one that comes to mind who's starting to write up public policy focused visions of the future which is um which which is great I mean we we, we need that and and it um it makes you know our job on the outside a bit easier when we can um, start reading about these centre-right visions for Australia rather than rather than having to produce them all. <laughs>
0: That's very good. Um, yeah. so we'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Um, my uh, contribution to this segment is on thinking of ending things, which is uh, another Charlie Kaufman production on netflix i was a little bit excited about it because uh um, being john Melkovich uh is one of my favorite films uh Kaufman's renowned for um uh, it, uh, producing films that are a little bit sort of surreal make you make you think a little bit um it's uh what do they say it's almost sort of um middle brow high art or, or something like that um and uh, and, I re- and I did recently watch another one of his films, which was uh, the 2005 uh, Synecdoche, uh, New York. Uh or sort of synodosh, but apparently you say synecdoche. Yeah, I've always called
1: it Syncadosh. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, 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 it. no, even worse.
0: <laughs> and that was pretty good. So I had high hopes for this one, um, uh, but I'm thinking of ending things was about how I felt about 20 minutes into the movie. Uh, at the end of an interminable car ride, there's about three more. There's another interminable car ride during the movie. Um, it's uh, Jesse uh, Plemons, Jesse Buckley are the uh, male and female leads, um, and they're they're supposedly in a relationship. Going back to visit his parents, um, but everything's sort of shifting all the time. You know, uh, she gets called by different names. Um, and then once you arrive and you see that the parents are um, David Teulis and uh, Tony Collette, you know that something's on. I mean, Tony Collette just seems to specialise in delivering these um, amazing performances of sort of grotesque characters um, who, who make you feel deeply, deeply uncomfortable as, <laughs> as they're talking. And, um, uh, you know, there's time shifts and you're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Apparently, it's based on a on a book uh, rather than an original story by by Charlie Kaufman. The acting is the best thing about it, like universally. I think you know all of the actors in this do a terrific job, and and much of it uh, is so posed. It's like it's a, for me. It was like a filmed stage play, but there's a difference between being a little bit surreal and 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 and. Uh, Messing with your mind and messing with concepts of times, and being incoherent, and to mm. me it just got incoherent. And the trouble with watching things on the couch is, you just like, I don't need this.
1: <laughs> I, I I am embarrassed to admit that I also got up to the first car scene, yeah, and then I was tired and I went to bed, and I haven't been inspired to pick it up again. Well, I went, which is a <laughs> which is a real shame because being John Malkovich is fantastic. But also, um, adaptation is an underrated classic as well. Yep. To which, which again is another book. So, it was based on a book, and it's, adaptation is about the act of adapting the book um, and just destroying the coherence of the book and how how hard it is to adapt the book. So, it's actually it's much more clever. And I think was it an- anomalisa was on, on Yeah, that's him as well. History, yeah, I, I didn't which see- I thought. It was a bit disappointing in that sense as well, but um, you know, I liked his old stuff better than his new stuff, as um, as as the band
0: used to say. Indeed, uh, very good. So uh, we'll put a link to that, and uh, yeah, maybe if you take four or five goes at it, you will get through this one. Uh, fans of Charlie Kaufman will, will watch <laughs> Five brazen indeed. I I, fa- I fast forwarded through the second car ride. Uh, that's the only way I could get to the end of the movie, which was completely incoherent. Um, it was it was m- like the third act of two thousand and one, but not as impressive visually. Yeah. Um,
1: so, suddenly they're just in, in a bedroom. They're just standing there. I just, re-
0: yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, there's a ballet scene. Go figure. It's actually a beautiful Sorry. ballet scene with stand-ins for the two leads who look vaguely yeah. similar. So I don't know what's going on. You have been listening to Looking Forward. Uh, I've been Scott Hargrave, who's editor of the IPA Review. Uh, I'd like to say a big thank you to my co-host, Chris Berg, from RMIT University. Thanks, Scott. Evan Mulholland, Director of Communications at the IPA. Thanks, Scott. To everyone listening and watching, don't forget this is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. You can go to our website to see how to join or donate. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, this is your opportunity for a five-star review uh, to let and tell all your friends about Looking Forward um, because we want we have a message and we want to get it out there uh, and we want to be able to talk about our great research with as many people as possible. Well, big thank you also to Josh in the control room. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.